Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories number 11. Wow. Double digits. Again, this is what will happen from this point on until we get to 99. That will be the last only double digits. Then we will hit triple digits. When that happens, we're doing something. What we need to hope for, because this is too much math for me to figure out, is when we do story number 100, we got to hope it's during the growing season because then we can give a lot of things away. If it's like in January or February, I mean, Dahlia tubers we could give away, you know, that's sort of cool. But if it's during the flower season, heavy flowers will be given away. So that's a positive. This week's story is, the big thing I wanted to do was a guide for spring to prep everyone for their gardening experience. Because yes, despite the fact it's a little chilly out this morning, probably wherever you're at in the country, unless you're one of those braggarts that lives down in like Florida, California, or tropical climates, we need to get ready for spring. And February to me is the best month to do it. That's the action month. If you have things that you haven't gotten yet, if you have ideas about things, you haven't fully put them in plan, this is the time. February is it. Because once you get to April, things start to move pretty quick. And then once you get to May, it's almost too late. So this week's stories, all about the guide for spring. But before we get there, I wanted to talk about, this is a theory. You know, I like to go deep thoughts here on Natchez Glen House stories. And I've been thinking about my challenges in trying to find guests and who I see being successful in social media with plants and flowers specifically. But the two on social media really go hand in hand. There aren't a lot of people that are posting photos of really cool evergreen conifers or trees and having that much success. So that in itself speaks to a bit of a subject. But flowers and plants on Instagram specifically are tied at the hip right now. And that's awesome because flowers are awesome. But I wondered to myself, how did we get to the spot we're at? It's sort of how I looked at it. How did we get here? Where the people that are really successful on social media with flowers and plants aren't necessarily people with really long track records. They're, they're newer people in the category. And in doing the podcast, I have reached out to a lot of people that I've known for a long time who have been doing this for a long time at a really high level. And that's been really frustrating for me because some of those people have been really open and willing to participate. Some people, it's just a scheduling thing, which is no worries. I get that. And other people have been like, sure, whenever you want to. Uh, two weeks from now, one of my uh, longtime uh, friends in this is a professor at Washington State University. And she and I actually did a podcast together, uh, Carry the One Divided by Seven, 10 years ago. And Linda Chalker Scott, she and I will have a great conversation about a lot of really interesting things. And there are people like that. But the majority, have not wanted to come on the podcast. Varying reasons will be kind and will say that. I would say excuses. And it led me back to 
How did we get here? Whenever you have a vacuum, a place where there's just not a lot there, sort of an empty space, it gets filled really easily, right? Like think of the corner of your house, right? The little corner along the baseboards. You never really clean over there. Then eventually you pay attention and you go, how did all this stuff get here? Nothing even happens over here. I never go to, how, how is this dirt, right? It's one of those. It's like there's a gravity to things that fill spaces that are empty. And the category of horticulture and plants has been a little like that. Like the corner in the house. The people that were really into it, they weren't really very vocal. They weren't very active. And then social media came along. And it opened up a great opportunity to have those same people get out in front and speak. But it didn't happen. And then that led to really pretty pictures of flowers becoming really the thing they took over. And the people that were posting the really pretty pictures of flowers who had aptitude and understood social media, they filled that void. So who do you blame, right? Because we all know, I feel, that a lot of the people in this space are using some tactics that I'm just not a fan of. You can't blame the people who filled the void. They saw opportunity, took advantage of it. I really blame the people who were into plants, who were into horticulture, who didn't fill the void when the opportunity was there, myself included. Yeah, I, I was busy running a very large nursery and have, you know, at that time-ish, uh, a young daughter. A lot of excuses, right? Same thing. And... Now I look at it and I go, huh, it's definitely a mistake that we need to correct. Now the problem that I think lays in front of us is how do we get this back? And I don't mean back and like, we're going to take it over, but just maybe a more solid base of information and maybe a spirit of information it's not so monetizing heavy as anyone that is a, a user of Instagram clearly knows right now. There are times where the swipe up on Instagram stories is for real. It, it's a consistent bombardment of swipe up for this sale, swipe up for this promotion, swipe up for this hashtag ad. There's a lot of it. And again, nothing wrong with that. You, you, you get out there, you hustle, you make that money. I got you. But in the case of the plants, it's taken on a really interesting form with these workshops where they're super expensive. I'll talk more about it when uh, Linda Chalker Scott joins us. But I know Linda had done some online coursework that people could uh, download. And I think they were $50. Yeah. Yeah. $50. I'll get behind that. Absolutely. Linda's super well-respected. She's written a ton of books and papers. Uh, she's been putting out free, great-level gardening horticulture content for at least 20, 25 years. She's always been really free with that. So if she wants to do a specific workshop class that you can download for $50, oh yeah, full support to that. So in taking it back, what I really mean is opening it up to what it should be, a real free-flowing exchange of information. And that's 
where it doesn't seem to be right now. In fact, I had an interesting uh, sponsored post, again, come up on Instagram of someone who was going to be offering an online how to have a flower farm workshop. And of course, because I'm this way, I looked at it and I was reading through the material. It was all what you'd expect, right? It was, oh, you know, learn how to grow flowers, da-da-da-da-da, productive. If if you're a beginner, this will get you going, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, yada-da-da-da-da. But then it said, in 2017, what? It was someone who literally started growing things at any kind of scale like that in 2017. It's like 18 months ago. Wow. Hmm. Do we really need that? That's the question. Because when you have that empty space, that vacuum, what it gets filled with, you may not always like. And if you're new to this, you don't know. Is this information good? What is this person's backstory? And I've mentioned this before in varying formats. If Michael Marriott from David Austin Roses decides to do a workshop somewhere in the country about roses, and Michael has worked with David Austin since 19, late 84, beginning of 85, was the head of production, the roses that we all drool over from David Austin. Guess who was the person who grew them first? Guess who was the person that worked with them the longest? It's Michael. So if he decides to do a workshop and it's $1,500 and it's three days and it's extensive, I'd be like, yeah, it's a good thing. That's something I can get behind. But when it's someone trying to sell an online workshop who's been doing it for literally 18 months, maybe not so much. Spring is upon us. It's a thing. I know we don't think so today because it's cold outside, but spring is in the air. So I wanted to do a workshop guide for spring. Let's define it first. What is spring? It's a challenging question, actually. Spring for me as a definitive moment is when average nighttime temperatures no longer go below freezing. When is spring is more complicated. Let's take two distinctly different regions of the country. Let's go to Oregon because I have a lot of familiarity with that. Oregon goes through this really interesting pattern. Uh, People are mistaken about the Pacific Northwest and in particular Oregon. Uh, The further north you get along Interstate 5 out there where you head up through Seattle, it changes a great deal. But the overall Pacific Northwest climate goes like this. In August, it will be dry and it will be hot and the daytime hours and sunlight are extremely long. So you can have 12, 13, almost 14 hours of daylight throughout that period. And it's the hot season. Then almost in the blink of an eye, it goes wet and cool. Then there is a January pattern where the wet continues And the cold can dip more so. You can get occasional snow, 
but it's pretty mild typically. And then February kicks in and we're still wet, but you can see a trend upward in nighttime lows. And almost by that time, we're getting out of the cycle of the nighttime lows being below freezing. The ground is typically not frozen over, so the ground is workable, but wet. Now, here's where Oregon and the Pacific Northwest break from the rest of the country. The daytime highs don't really exceed 70 degrees, maybe 75, until sometimes the third week of June, and occasionally even July. Now, of course, people, all this is relative. There are years where that is not the case. But pretty assuredly, spring is really a late February to June event. So we're talking about almost four months of spring weather. Now, for the rest of the country, let's take New England, another area that I'm really familiar with. You can get years where the ground and the nighttime lows still go below freezing all the way up until the last weeks of April even, even even into May. And in horrible years, old-time New Englanders will tell you, I remember there being snowbanks on the 4th of July. Now granted, maybe they drink too much, but it sort of happens. It can be very cold late into the year. And for them, very quickly on the other side of that, we can see daytime highs up into the 80s or 90s by July-ish. So that's a really short spring in some years because of cold, right? Where we've got cold and hot right next to each other. Now let's go where I'm at here in Tennessee. Tennessee, to me, is the marriage of both places, and it makes a little bit of sense. We have very early warm-ups, followed by yo-yo temperatures, where even by March, you can see an 80-something degree day, but then April, have a day where it goes down to 19 degrees. 2007 is the perfect example of this. It's the worst of all cases when you're in a climate thinking spring. And the reason why this weather thought is so important for you is decisions that you make today in the next 30, 45 days can be impacted immensely by weather. In fact, I recently went into a big box store that will remain nameless but may have orange signage. And they were carrying dahlia tubers. Now we're in January still. If you're in Tennessee, even though we've had relatively moderate weather, you could think, oh, I'm going to buy some dahlia tubers. I'm going to plant those today. And what would happen to you? You would now be at the mercy of the very chaotic yo-yo weather for the better part of our average last frost date here first frost date, last frost date, depending upon how you look at it, both sides now, Joni Mitchell, is between April 10th and April 15th. So you'd have over 60 days of going, I wonder if those dahlias came up out of the ground, and I wonder if they got hit by that 18-degree temperature last night. So that's why this weather thinking is so important. In 2007, it was an incredibly mild winter overall. Then in February and March, there were 70, and then in March, 80 degree warm-up days. Literally, everything was pushing out from native trees to fruiting trees. You name it, it was going. 
And then suddenly, between April 13th and April 17th, we had three nights where temperatures hovered below 25 degrees. And in one night here at Natchez Glen, we even had a 19. And all of those plants, zap, done. And if you're growing annuals or really tender perennials, there's no coming back from that. So climate in spring determines what is spring. It's not the same for all of us. It is not one size fits all. So here's the guide to weather. First, we do have, this is something I've, I've badmouthed the USDA cold hardiness maps in the past. But here is something that is useful. Useful information is what is your last and first frost dates. Now, the first frost date is going to be in the fall, typically, is the way it's listed. It's when's the first time in the year you get frost. Then the last one is actually the spring one. What's the last average day for frost for your area? Now, a really interesting number to come to is how many, this is readily available just through a Google search, how many frost-free nights and days do you get in your climate? Because really, for a home garden, that's your growing season. It's how many days you have. And a huge condolence to anyone that lives in the upper Midwest, because when you find this date and the count and you compare it to other areas, a small tear will come down your left eye because your growing season is so much shorter. And if you go further than that area of the country and you go up into northern latitudes, up in northern Europe or into Canada, it gets even more depressing as far as that goes. Now, magically, even in those areas, plants adapt. And that is one of the other big guides to spring. Remember, plants don't have calendars. There's no calendars in the plant world. They're just reacting. Natchez Glenhouse stories, rules to garden. Nature is indifferent. It doesn't come preloaded and says, oh, today is January 3rd. I'm supposed to be cold and dormant. If January 3rd is 80 degrees, the plant is doing something. You may not see it, but below the soil, these things called roots are activated by that weather. They're developing. They're growing. They're starting to seek out nutrients, develop new roots. It's really moving based upon the weather, never the calendar. And that is a huge thing to get used to. One of the biggest things you can do at this time of year, in particular in a year like this where winter has been relatively mild so far, is go out and just stroll. Pay attention. Right now, I could take you out to my peony beds and you would see active eyes on the peonies. They're swollen. They're, they're hard to miss with peonies. They're this... Uh, burgundy, mauve, cranberryish color. So when they're moving and they're active, you'll start to see those really noticeably. And that's where they're at right now. So what's the worst case scenario? It's that 2007 year. Suddenly it warms up even more. 
the peonies are like, hooray, spring is here. And they sound like that. I've actually recorded peonies uh, secretly, and that is how they talk. And then, boom, here comes 18 degrees in the first week of April, and all of that growth gets damaged. So one of my big guides for spring for you, if you're in a part of the country where spring is a yo-yo, like Tennessee, Missouri, uh, Southern Illinois, really being careful with where you put your investments in plants. You don't want plants that are extremely active, extremely early out of the gate. There are a lot of plants that fall into that. Peonies are the easy one to pick on. But what's also difficult sometimes to research is even within an entire species of plants, there are sometimes particular varieties that are really early. One of the peonies I have is called Early Scout. Yeah, the name lives up to it. That thing's out of the ground like tomorrow. And does it get damaged a lot? Yes. So when you're researching your new plants for spring, keep that in mind. That if you can't find information about is it an early plant or a late plant, if it's a flowering plant, you can usually associate early and late flowering with early and late growth development. So if it's an early flowering plant, you know it's going to get up out of the ground with its leaves and its foliage early. And then that's how the flower is going to show up early. So if you're in a yo-yo area for spring, be careful with this. Japanese maples. No one knows the pain, which I believe is a song, of Japanese maples getting hit by frost more than I do. I have over a hundred cultivars of Japanese maple here at Nacho's Glen. Now, when my interest slash addiction to Japanese maples began, I didn't really associate our topography with a problem, but there is one. I'm in a definitive frost pocket. It's a low-lying area that retains moisture throughout the daytime hours, and as cold air and warm air meet in the overnight and in the morning, that moisture rises and turns to water vapor, which can eventually become frozen. Hence, frost. And every year of the 11-ish years, I've had extensive gardens here. I think eight of them, I've taken frost damage on my Japanese maples. And yes, every year, spring is both great for me and nervous for me because of this event. One of the big reasons why I chose to go with Dahlia slash Dahlias for Natchez Glen was I knew that. And I wanted something that if we grew it, we could really control it. Make sure that we weren't planting out 5,000 peonies that every other year, 30% of them got had to be covered for three, four weeks at a time or got damaged by frost. Dahlias, I can really control the timeline for spring. Where the Japanese maples, I can't. Now one year, many moons ago, and I'll post this on Instagram stories as well. It's very funny. It was very early in the development of Natchez Glen when we were just tree-based, really. I knew there was a frost event coming. 
it was going to be a bad one. I had already taken damage one year. I was very like, oh, this is the worst. Every year this frost thing is going to happen. So I went out and I, the work lights they sell at big box, Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera, big work lights, you know, they're, they're heavy wattage. I went out and I bought like, I don't know, 20 of them. And I, I, I shun or I shined or I, sh- I, I shined a light on all of those Japanese maples to try to warm up the air temperature and the leaves as much as I could. Did it work? Yeah, it did a little bit. Should you have to go out, go out and buy 20, 30 uh, big heavy duty work lights? Nah, probably not. Do I do anything today? No. Why? The trees are established. They take some damage from the frost. They get over it. That's the other guide when it comes to this issue of spring. Some plants can recover from frost damage. Others cannot. And here's the difference. Non-hardy annuals, plants that do not take temperatures below, let's say 35 degrees, they won't come back. Tomatoes, that's the easy one. Tomato plant outside in 35, 32 degree weather, gets frost damage, it's done. Maybe it'll recover a little bit, but the odds are it's toast for the year. So when you're making your choices, that's a big part of it. And on the Japanese maples for spring, here's an interesting tidbit. And this is one of those where I say we need to get really knowledgeable people talking about plants. Here's something for you. So of the hundred plus Japanese maples that I have here, there's one variety, Hogioku, which is never pushing out early. That plant, botanically, all Japanese maples that we're mostly familiar with are Acer palmatum, Acer maper, Acer maple, palmatum, five lobes on the leaves. Those maples all push out, except for Hogioku. Now, Hogioku is an old cultivated variety of Japanese maple over 100 years. And it knows better. It is the last Japanese maple to push out every year consistently. Why? Well, if we're getting real botanical nerdy on this subject, Hogioku is actually Acer palmatum amlinum. So it's a slightly different species. Now, it's never been classified by that. And there's hardcore botanists that we would get in an argument, hopefully over some drinks at a good restaurant. But we get in an argument of if it's a different species. Does it deserve that? But that little clue that that particular variety of Japanese maple pushes out later than all of the others tells you there's something just a tad different about its genetics. And across all of the Japanese maples, it's not like there's one day and they're all pushed out. There is a stagger to them. Some of them really early, some of them really late, like Hogioku. And that's the difference. And sometimes the information that that vacuum that I mentioned earlier, it didn't fill because we didn't get the people that knew those things. So one of the other guides to spring, do your homework. What do we plant in spring? There's a great question, right? What do we plant? What are, what are we doing? What, 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 what are we doing? What, what are we going to plant here? It's spring. This is the time. I see people talking about it. People are going to big box stores. They're buying lame plants. I mean, they're going there and they're buying great plants. That 
is the other guide to spring. So, one of my long-standing ha-ha-ha-ha is when I see people buying plants at a garden center that are blooming, that bloom once, and by the time they get it home, they're done blooming. Literally. It's really not the time to plant. Peonies. I love picking on peonies. Anyone notice that? I'm a big peony pick-on person. A lot of alliteration. When you buy a peony at a garden center and it's in bloom, peonies usually only bloom for about five days. And you plant it. It's done by the time it's in the garden. It's not a great choice. For me, what am I planting in spring? Well, ideally, if I'm doing spring perennials, I'm going to try to get them in the ground maybe even in the fall of the previous year, early. Or I'm trying to find things that are later blooming or continuously blooming through the course of spring and into summer. I would plant irises early, before they bloom. When would I plant them? I'd plant them in March in uh, zones, I'm trying to give you an idea here, in moderate climates, uh, the Pacific Northwest, Northern California, uh, the southern U.S. In the upper Midwest, I'd probably do that in a very late April, early-ish May. Again, the ground is no longer frozen. Getting back to the previous definition of what spring, the ground is really definitive in a lot of this. So for me, I don't want to waste space in spring unless I'm aware of that, right? I'm planting something that I know I'm missing out on its best this year. I'm setting it up for the future. That's when I'm, I'm planting things for the future. Catherine Hefburn had some kind of quote about that. Uh, people that garden believe in the future. It's something along those lines. Google it. It's interesting. She was so into gardening. And she had that interesting way of talking, right? I won't do the, the impersonation because I haven't done one in 100 years. But at one point, I had it in my mind. But, and if you're too young to remember this, just YouTube Catherine Hefburn. It was an interesting delivery that Ms. Hefburn had. She was a great gardener, so we have to give her a lot of credit for that alone. That is, many times, if I'm going perennials, I have to make that decision. And I think one of the things people fall victim to in garden centers is that allure of the spring flower, forgetting that the spring flower is probably over by the time you get it home. So really understand that selection process. If you saw me buying plants in spring, you'd probably be like, this guy buys ugly plants. None of them have any flowers. I'd be buying things like woodland anemones. I'd be buying things like astrantia. I'd be buying things like scabiosa. Because I know the flowers are in the future, not the ones that are blooming today. The other thing that is a really bad habit, and we will have some people on to discuss this. There's one that I'm working on in particular, which is really, um, um, I don't want to say responsible, but they're a big part of this, is most of the plants we see in garden centers in spring have been started early in hoop houses. And they're usually about 30 to 45 days ahead of their natural progression. So let's say 
you're buying an iris and it's in bloom. In your garden, the iris probably wouldn't have been blooming for maybe another 30 or 40 days, but because it's been started early, it is. Now, what is so wrong with that? There are some problems with it. If it's a plant that is a little bit tender and you're in a part of the country where maybe you still can see some lower temperatures, 40s, let's call it, this would be really a problem in the upper Midwest or New England, that that plant may be at a cycle where it's usually, it's going to bloom, then it's typically used to, it's starting to warm up even more. And then the energy is no longer going into the flower. The energy is going into maybe seed production, but a lot of root and foliage development. But it wants it to start to get warm at that stage so my roots can start to really reach out. And the problem is, if you're still cold and wet, that plant's like, what gives? In the greenhouse, in the hoop house, it wasn't this wet and cold. That's a problem sometimes. So. That's something to navigate in the when you're paying attention, right? Everything I try to do with the podcast and videos is just to give you these thoughts that run through your head. Is that what I'm seeing here? I bought this iris. It was beautifully blooming. Now I have it in the ground and it's seemingly not liking it. Wait a second. It thinks it should be warm and sunny and dry. I'm in a relatively cold part of the world and it's May 10th and it's actually sort of cold and wet. Wait a second. The iris isn't getting what it thinks it should because it's 40 days ahead of schedule. Exactly. That's the kind of thinking that for spring, for all of the years, all of the seasons, we need to have that gardening insight of what's going on here. The CSI of the gardening world. So what to plant for spring? Buy things that haven't bloomed yet. Buy things that the best is yet to come. Not things where we know it's not there yet. Annuals. Annuals are an interesting category. For a long time, that there, I think there's confusion between annuals and perennials and tender perennials and biennials. There's a lot of that going on. It feels like there should be a Susan B. Anthony commemorative coin for the whole thing. Perennials. Plants that come back every year. They're vegetative. They don't leave woody sticks coming out of the ground. And they come back. Pretty simple explanation. Annuals. They grow for one season with vegetative growth and then cold, climate, wet, kills them off. They go to seed, but they do not return from the previous year's growth. There's no establishment at all. Annuals. Tender perennial. In warm climates, the plant will return. In cold climates, it won't. Biennial. The plant produces itself in one year and then probably blooms in the second year. Or plant produces itself, blooms, goes to seed, and then comes back another year. Biennial. 
more confusing. Tender annual. In super warm climates, it's a perennial. In colder climates, it only comes back once, and it's done. That's pretty much the definitions. Now, when you choose annuals, there is a big problem when it comes to when do you plant? That average last frost date is the safety net that you need. For me, dahlias are really easy. This is a decision you have to understand. So dahlias being a tuberous plant, I can put them in the ground on about April 1st. Now, my average last frost date here ranges between April 10 and April 15th, and we've already established them in a super frost pocket. So Steve, why do you wait? Why don't you wait? Wait for the love of wait. No, here's why. There's no vegetative growth. Now, this is a phrase you will hear me use incessantly over the next 60 to 90 days. Vegetative growth. Simply put, the green stuff that comes up out of the ground or off of the woody parts of a plant. The end. The tuber on a dahlia is typically speaking, if we're just going straight to the ground with it, going to take about 15 days or so to typically get rehydrated, start going, okay, I'm in the ground. I'm going to start to send out roots. This is a thing. We can do this. And then it's going to start creating vegetative growth that are going to come out of its eyes. Now, that's going to take a minute. It's not going to happen in a second. You don't put it in the ground and then tomorrow it's like, whoa, look, it's Jack and the Beanstalk. If it did, that would be awesome. But it's not what's going to happen. It's going to take it a minute. So I know that timeline, 10 days, 14 days, maybe even 20 days for some of the tubers, is going to put me past the average last frost day. I should be clear of frost by the time they come up out of the ground. Or worst case scenario, there'll be a little bit of a light frost and maybe just the beginning of the new growth gets nipped by the frost. But I'm pretty safe. So things that go in the ground like that, we're okay with, with annuals. Now, getting back to the annuals we see at the garden center. There's the problem. I know I will see, especially this is true for vegetable plants, I really do find it funny how a lot of the big box stores in particular, they really try to get you on the vegetable kick early. It's sort of like how they put Christmas stuff out in September. It's sort of the same with the vegetables. They put them out there in like February just to, I don't know, get you to buy them. Now there's the problem. We put those plants out in the ground in April, even though the weather's okay. Not so good. Same thing for petunias. Same thing for marigolds. Same thing for zinnias. Any kind of annual small potted plant, salvia, celosia, don't make me keep going, people. All of those should be planted after that average last frost date. Is that a debatable subject? No, not unless you have a magic crystal ball. Let's say your average last frost date is May 1st. Now, on April 25th, if you look at the 10-day forecast and it is clear, smooth sailing, sure, go for it. But if your average last frost date is May 1st and it's April 10th, 
And even though it's super clear sailing at the moment, would I still wait? Yes. You cannot undo the damage of frost. So when it comes to annuals, that's the challenge. When to go. Now, many people, I'll pick on Northern Europe for a minute, up in uh, Scotland in particular, and up in Sweden and all of the Northern Scandinavian countries, there is such a short growing season that many gardeners will have like a little greenhouse, hoop house, high tunnel, whatever we want to call them, to get those plants going a little bit earlier. Because for them, things like some varieties of dahlia, or as they would say, dahlia, wouldn't even bloom if they didn't start them early. It's one of the things you'll see me do here in some videos at Natchez Glen over the next 45 days is I have a plan to start some dahlias really early so we can have cut flower earlier than we typically would. Now, if you have that, you're one up in the game. Now we're cheating weather a little bit. So we could buy some annuals. We could start things early because we have a protection for them. But straight out into the garden, not so much. That's the challenge with them. When you buy annuals, that average last frost date is such a key that cannot be cheated. Now we get into the other category. Woody shrubs. What is, that sounds bad, right? Woody shrub. It's a thing with plants, right? We're big into classifications. Um, Carl Linnaeus, by the way, for those of you that want a, a Google rabbit hole to dive down, he was one of the, the sole people who were responsible for the uh, taxonomy of plants and nomenclature. Now, here's an interesting thing about Carl Linnaeus. He may have been a little, you know, I uh, changed his name. Wasn't his birth name, Linnaeus. Um, people that knew him and wrote of him wrote of him in a very uh, interesting way. But we really like to classify things in plants. So what's a woody shrub? Lilacs, hydrangeas, roses, woody shrubs. Could they be any more different from each other? Yeah, super different. Lilacs, very prone to frost damage. Why? They bloom before they push out foliage. Magnolias, deciduous magnolias, fruit trees, these are all things that push out their bloom before their leaves. If you're me, and you're sitting in a frost pocket, in a yo-yo climate, guess what I'm not planting a lot of? You got it. Things that bloom before they leaf. That is one of the big decision makers on what you add for spring. Late summer flowering trees, woody shrubs, are great for areas like mine. But maybe not so great if you're in an area of the world where frost is a frequent event and sometimes late frost. So that's a decision on where you go. If I'm, one, if I'm in one of those areas, am I planting a lilac or am I planting a rose? Rose all day. Or as the kids would say, rosé all day, which rhymes and sounds better. And maybe if we stopped calling roses roses and called them rosé, maybe it'd be more popular. We, we need to really to think that. We need to think about people. 
we may need to think about renaming roses and just calling them rosé because rosé seems to be way more popular than roses. Can we agree? But we don't call it rose. We call it rosé because it sounds way more continental and fancy. That is your guide for spring. I want you to keep something in mind. Not once in there did I tell you, this is how you plant a plant. Let me give you the instructions. Number 10. I believe there is a lot of that content out there in the universe. I don't think you need my help with that. If you do need my help with it, I'll have that kind of content out there for you. But there are so many people who've done a fine job, a fine job of giving you the the best 10 perennials for spring, the best this for spring. That's really easy info to find. And throughout the way, you know, I always tell you little tidbits here and there of my favorites. If you ever ask me, I always answer. But what I really want you to start doing is approaching gardening in spring and summer and fall and all the other songs that have a season in them more with a mindset, an eye, an understanding of what, what's going on. What should I be doing? What are the things to pay attention to? Not so much the, here's a recipe, learn how to follow it. For a long time, for those of you that don't know, I worked in the food sector teaching people how to cook. And recipes are fine. And some people are very about recipes. You know, I don't, I don't want to call them an acronym, but maybe it's an acronym. But really to be successful and I think enjoy something, you got to have a bit of an instinct that you develop. And that's not by following the recipe. That's not by me telling you the top seven perennials for spring to plant are dot, 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 dot. The way for you to get good at this and enjoy it throughout your life is to get a feel for it. Have fun with it. I'm okay if you buy a plant that just doesn't do well. Now, granted, we're going to all go, that was $14, I'll never get back. But you know what? It's an experience. And trust me, from someone who has killed up, I told one time in one of the previous stories, I killed off like, I don't know, a hundred heathers and heaths. Yeah, that was a thing. It was a minute where I was like, wow, heathers and heaths really don't like Tennessee at all. They don't even like my really awesome soil. They just didn't like it this hot. That's all. You learned something. So if you're worried about $13, picture what the heathers and heaths cost me. So that's really what I try to get across in the podcast. I listen to a lot of other content that's out there in this category. And so much of it is sort of the same. It feels to me like we could go back with go back music. Insert go back music here. And the same questions and the same list of plants has been produced in gardening magazines and gardening content for the better part of 75 years. You don't need me for that. What you do need me for is Let's get in the mindset, people. Let's get a passion for this. Let's get a magic going for this. Because that's what spring really is. It's the key to this guide. I want you to think of things in the world. You ready? You with me? There's not much 
it suddenly goes from nothing to everything in a super short period of time. One day, it's a spot with nothing growing. Maybe there's just some dark colored roots and leaves sitting on top. And six weeks later, it's this beautiful, huge peony that's fragrant and you can smell it from hundreds of feet away sometimes. Not anything else that does that. The tree that stood there with its silhouette every morning, the sun came up and had this silhouette of shadow on the ground. And four weeks later, it was this magical glowing chartreuse color. That's what spring really is. It's this transformation that happens every year without fail, much more reliable than Santa Claus, with beautiful happenings everywhere. And the detail and the nuance that you see right now as I'm even talking to you, staring out my window, there's a Norway spruce called Acracona. Yeah, I know. It's not a great name. It's Latin. It means early cones or early coning. It's Norway spruce that has this really interesting thing that it, it just developed out of nowhere, where at the end of every one of its new pieces of growth, it actually creates a cone. Now, when spruce cones develop, it's not boring. It's actually this beautiful raspberry burgundy coloration that happens. So at the end of every one of the branches, there's one of those cones, and they're produced at the very beginning of the year, hence early cones. Acrocona. And every year, this plant, which is sort of a loose branched green spruce, does this magical thing. And that's what spring is about. That magic that every year, no matter what the weather has done, no matter when the weather has done it, spring is going to be magical. The only dreams I've had have been in the daytime Anything to get away from the straight line the straight line that I walk With all the medicated masses Creative minds outlined in chalk I've always bordered on the edge of something my mind goes where very few dare to tread Is it wrong that I'm dying, trying hard to live So I bend and break my back For a world that just won't give a little Views. 
Safe inside, no. 